Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Thank you for being here on a Sunday in June. I know uh, many of you maybe are coming off of a vacation or getting ready to head on vacation. Uh, You're coming off of a summer camp or you're getting ready to put your kids into a summer camp, but you're here today and we're grateful that you're here. It's going to be an awesome morning, already has been, uh, so we appreciate your coming. Uh, You all get to see what happens, you know, in in the hour or so that you're here you don't always get to see what happens before and after services, but I want to tell you something that happened after the services last Sunday. So I'm going to take you to about 1.20ish in the afternoon. Our teardown team has finished uh, loading up our truck and trailer. The tech and uh, music team is, getting, is filling up the truck back here. And it's my responsibility on this particular Sunday uh, to bring the truck and trailer around and park it. And I'm backing up a trailer with a pickup truck. Both of these are things I should not be doing, but on this particular Sunday I was. And if you've never done that, it's really, really difficult to back up a trailer with a pickup truck and get it in the right spot. And I was doing incredibly well, if I don't uh, say so myself. And to the point where I was like, I'm going to get out of the truck and I'm going to call attention to how well I'm doing at this. And I get out of the truck and I say to the team, hey, and before I can get the words out, one of the tech guys goes, Dude, the truck is rolling, and I had uh, put it in neutral and not parked. So the truck is, and I'm doing like this James Bond thing, running along the side of it, jump in, hit the brake, and all of the pride that I had turned into shame in about 2.7 seconds. Uh, It was an embarrassing moment for me. So I gave uh, the truck keys up to another person who backed it in beautifully and all was well. But I tell you that story because maybe you can relate within one moment thinking everything is going really, really well, and the next moment realizing you are headed for absolute catastrophe. I mean, that can happen so quick. And what Paul is going to do, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 today, a letter that Paul is writing to a church that he planted, and he's basically going to say to them, you think you're doing a great job here, but watch out, this thing is about to get away from you. In fact, what Paul's going to do is touch on two specific issues in this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that are what I might call looming catastrophes. They are as relevant today in the 21st century as they were in the first. In fact, I would bet that whatever anxieties you have, whatever trouble you're having in your life, whatever's causing sleeplessness or frustration or whatever it might be, it probably comes back to one of these two issues, if, if not a combination of both. So here they are. What Paul's going to address in 1 Corinthians 6 is interpersonal conflict and impulsive desires. Or inter, uh, impulsive desires and interpersonal conflict. Or we might think about it as impulsive desires that are leading to interpersonal conflict. These two things have gotten completely jumbled up within the church at Corinth, and Paul wants to help them untangle these issues. James, one of the early followers of Jesus, wrote this in relation to impulsive desires and interpersonal conflict. 
Though he didn't use those exact terms, he says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, or we might say impulses, are at war within you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and you quarrel. Impulsive desires and interpersonal conflict. I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you could acknowledge this morning, if you were being honest, that one or both of those issues is a, is a problem in your life right now? The, the, the temptations to sin, the impulsive desires of the flesh, uh, the conflicts that we have in our marriages, in our homes, in our workplaces and neighborhoods, these are real issues in the world today as they were in the world that Corinth lived in. And so what we're going to do today is we're actually going to parse out these two issues. Originally, I was going to tackle them both and realized these are going to take their own Sunday. And so we're going to look at just the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians 6, and we're going to look at this issue of interpersonal conflict. Go there with me at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 6. Paul writes this, When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you who is wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But instead, brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, and you do this even to your own brothers. Paul will use two parallel expressions to point to the same problem. It is this. He says in one place, a grievance against one another, and in another place, a dispute among the brothers. Now, we do not know exactly the kinds of conflicts that were happening. We, we know about the man who had his father's wife. We know about the quarreling about which apostle is greatest. But these seem to be different conflicts because these are issues that are winding up in the Corinthian courtrooms. And what Paul is going to do is not rebuke the Corinthian believers for having conflict. That is an inevitable part of life. And oh, by the way, an inevitable part of life in the church life among Christians. We were never reprimanded for having tension or friction with other believers. What Paul is going to rebuke is not that they're having conflict, but it's the way in which they're addressing the conflicts. Verse 7, he refers to this thing of lawsuits. And this for Paul becomes concerning for a few reasons. First of all, it demonstrated a lack of Christian love among the Corinthian believers. Earlier this week, I was talking with a cousin of mine who lives in, uh, outside of Atlanta. And this particular cousin, Kevin, has worked in and around churches and, and parachurches, megachurches, Christian ministries, organizations, pretty much his entire adult life. And as he and I were talking about these things, he said, you know, the, the bottom line is I work with pastors and, and ministry leaders. You know, we want to point to all the problems that exist within the church. But he said the most fundamental problem the church has is we don't do relationships well. We do programs well. 
We set lofty goals. We might even achieve those goals. But when it comes down to Christian A and Christian B simply getting along, we have a hard time doing that. It is among the most preeminent reasons that churches split and go under. It is the number one reason why missionaries leave the mission field. It's not because of the lost people they're trying to reach, but because they can't get along with the Christians on their mission team. I might translate the conversation Kevin and I had this way, we don't love each other well. That's a, that's a personal admission, and many of you could say the same. We don't do a good job at love. One of my heroes, Eugene Peterson, said this, every day I put love on the line. There is nothing I am less good at than love. I'm far better in competition than love. I'm far better at responding to my instincts and ambitions, or we might read impulses to get ahead and make my mark than I am at figuring out how to love another person. I am schooled and trained in acquisitive skills and getting my own way. And yet I decide every day to set aside what I can do best and attempt to do what I, uh, attempt what I do very clumsily, open myself to the frustrations and failures of loving, daring to believe that failing in love is better than succeeding in pride. The bottom line is we can do a lot of things well, but Paul says, if I don't have love, I am literally nothing at all. And in Paul's view, and in fact, in the view of the entire New Testament teaching, love dictates that it would be better for us to be on the receiving end of hostility than on the giving end. Now, now we're all going to go, you know, instinctively, no, 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 I don't want to be on the receiving end of hostility. I don't like being reprimanded, rebuked. I don't like being cut off on the highway. I don't like being put in my place. I don't like when other people have something against me. And Paul says, yeah, but that beats having something against them. Because then the issue is in your, in your own heart. In fact, Paul believes this so much that he actually says these words so audaciously in verse 7. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded or cheated? And Paul isn't just kind of being holier than thou and saying, hey, you should take the high road. Paul is coming from a perspective that is uniquely different than what the Corinthian believers have. Paul understood what it was to suffer for a cause. Paul knew what it was to, to give up his own ambitions and opportunities and accolades for the sake of the gospel. Paul was a man who had been shipwrecked three different times. Now, if I was on a cruise ship and it rocked too much, I wouldn't get back on it. Like, that would be it for me. Give me an airplane ride with some turbulence and I'll probably never fly again. Like, that's, Paul gets on the, the ship three times, three different ships go under, and he keeps going. Five times, Paul receives 39 lashes with a whip. And the only reason it's not 40 is because that was considered a death sentence. Not only that, but Paul spent a cumulative total of more than five years in prison. This was not you know, modern prisons. This was ancient world dungeons. And if all of that wasn't enough, he was once stoned to the point of death, but survived only to be beheaded by Rome many years later. And Paul would say, I'm going through all of this. <laughs> Part of the labors of Paul's love, if you will, is this church at Corinth that he planted himself that he invested in that he discipled that he raised up leaders he's going all of this suffering the apostles are undergoing and you're quabbling and, and quarreling over money over property 
over petty issues that are now actually going into the courtrooms. Paul is shocked by the situation at hand. If you were to do a study of the New Testament reading from Matthew to Revelation and set it down, not reading in chunks, but reading from start to finish, I believe that one of the things that would most overwhelm you is the focus that is placed on this one virtue above all other virtues, and that's the virtue of love. It just jumps off of the pages all over the New Testament letters, epistles, and gospels. Matthew 22, Mark 12, and Luke 10, Jesus is quoted as telling a teacher of the law that the greatest commandment that exists is love. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, holding it up alongside of faith and hope, says love is the highest of virtues. Paul again in Romans 13 and Galatians 5 says that to love another person is to fulfill the law. One of Jesus' disciples, a man named John, said that God is love. It is the essence of his nature. And one of the last things that Jesus told his disciples was that love is the identifying mark of the Christian. John chapter 13, Jesus said it this way, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. For by this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. And Paul is looking at this church called Corinth and saying, you're not loving each other well. You're not moving together in Christian love and unity. And that is a problem on its own. But it leads now to a second area of concern for Paul. And that is it is tarnishing the witness or reputation of the church within the culture of Corinth. This concern will actually show up several times throughout Paul's letter of 1 Corinthians um, it shows up twice in this passage. Verse 1, he refers to them as going, taking their stuff before the unrighteous in verse 1. And in verse 6, he says, before unbelievers. Paul understood and we affirm that God's dream for the church is that we would be a compelling witness before a watching world of the redeeming love of God in the person of Jesus. It begs the question, if Christians can't resolve conflict between each other, what does it say for the gospel that we preach? The, the good news, the gospel, the essential message of Christianity is a message of reconciliation. A, a message of God who had no sin sending his own son Jesus to reconcile sinners to himself, not holding our sins against us. So when we walk out the door and hold petty sins against one another and have conflict spilling out into the watching world, what happens is the gospel we preach is laughed at. It's ridiculed. It's unbelieved. In recent years, there's been a proliferation of attention on the church, especially the church in America and in the Western world, for its really monumental failings. There was a podcast that came out a few years ago that you might have listened to. There's a documentary film that's out right now that exposes another church. There are blogs and articles and news reports. We could fill this auditorium with the paper that has been printed on. And the temptation is that we look at that and go, the culture is just trying to destroy the church. Man, they're, they're trying to tarnish our reputation. And that is probably true. I'm not going to argue that. But did you know that in each of the cases that I'm aware of, when that sin becomes public and is exposed by filmmakers or bloggers or, or the media at large, it only happens after it has been hidden 
and covered up by those churches for years or decades. And so maybe what we need to do is turn the spotlight on ourselves and say, maybe we're the problem. Maybe we have issues to work through to expose the sin in our own life. Maybe you've heard the expression, be sure that your sins will find you out. Anybody heard that? Did you know that's based on something Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew chapter 10? And most people wouldn't know that, but the truth holds. I've spoken before about sinkholes. If you're not from Florida, um, you're going to think this is a myth like Bigfoot, but it is not. There are places around the state of Florida where the ground just goes back into the ocean, basically. Like it just gives out. Um, And this happened in my hometown on two or three occasions while I was growing up. It's a very, very scary thing as a child to know that at any moment your home could be underneath the ground and it would not be uh, any time to, to recover. This is a picture of one. Um, And by the way, with the price of swimming pools in today's market, this is not a bad way to get one, um, although it's in the front yard instead of the backyard. But this is what can happen, and it's called a sinkhole. And differently than other natural disasters that take place in Florida, see, when a hurricane comes, typically it forms over a matter of a few days in the ocean, and then we learn about it, and then, you know, it washes up on shore. Tornadoes only take a matter of minutes to form. There's almost no warning at all. But with sinkholes, it's a little bit differently. Because although the experience of a sinkhole happens suddenly, what's been going on under the surface has been erosion over the course of months or even years of time. And what feels like a sudden disaster or sudden catastrophe has under the surface been brewing for a very long time. There's a principle that I believe is at play here. When we try to cover up and hide our sin, when we push it underground, God may graciously expose our sin individually or as a church because sin that is not confronted is sin that cannot be corrected. And Jesus is clear, the New Testament reaffirms, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all unrighteousness. And so maybe it's not the devil exposing us. Maybe God is saying, church, you need to work on this. My favorite artist right now, a guy named Benjamin William Hastings, has a song called Cathedrals of the Nelder Grove, and he's wrestling with this issue of the exposure of sin in the church, and this is what he sings. I've heard hell is out to get us, some unrighteous grand assault. I could argue it's the devil, but I could make a case for God. The Pharisee, the woke, the wayward, but it's just three different shades of pride. So like white blood cells protect a body, perhaps that's how God heals a bride. I want you to know that while there is grace for every sin, it is also grace that throws us at the feet of Jesus to deal with our sin. God is too good to allow us to to live in, in hypocrisy, to live underground, to hide the big issues of sin in our life because we cannot ever be healthy living in that way. And yet... When we blow past all of the accountability, when we blow past all of the guardrails, when it takes the culture exposing our sin, there is a massive price to be paid. And the massive price to be paid is that the testimony of the church, the witness of the church is dragged through the mud. 
Now, these are the two, two of the big issues that Paul wants to address, the issue of the lack of Christian love or Christian unity, and also the way that the Corinthians' actions are tarnishing their witness in the culture. But there's a third issue that he points to, a third reason for concern that is actually quite surprising. It is far less intuitive than the other two. And Paul's third concern goes something like this. Their actions reveal a lack of preparation for future life in the kingdom of God. Now, what in the world does that mean? Remember that in verse 1, Paul rebukes the Corinthians for going before unbelievers. In other words, taking their, their disputes into court before unbelievers. Well, that word, unbelievers, in the ESV is translated in the KJV as unjust. And it is actually a much better translation of the word. Blue Letter Bible says this word, adikos, which is the Greek, is descriptive of one who violates or has violated justice. And this great irony is coming before the Apostle Paul. He's going, you are going before the unjust, those without God, in hopes of getting justice. How in the world does that make any sense? How can a godless people settle disputes for those who are children of God? And Paul says in verse 3, don't you know that we're to judge angels how much more than matters pertaining to this life? This could be a really fun rabbit hole to chase. We're not going to do that. But I'll tell you what I believe Paul is referring to, what I understand him to be saying. We know that in the coming of Jesus, there will be a future judgment of both people and of angels. But what does it mean that Christians or the redeemed people will judge angels? I believe what Paul is referring to is the pronouncement of judgment on the angels who, who turned from God, fell from grace in heaven, and became demons, the ones who torment and the ones who try to turn people away from God. And that in the future judgment, those of us who are redeemed, those who are the people of God, will pronounce the final judgment of those fallen angels. Now, you probably have a lot on your to-do list this week. You didn't know that was one of your assignments for the future, but it is. You will pronounce judgment not only on the world, but also on angels. And Paul draws this alarming contrast. He says, if this is your future, and it is, perfect harmony and justice as we together reign with God for all of eternity, it makes no sense that in your present you would have disunity to the point of relying on godless people to settle your disputes. That there is no way that that makes sense if our future is justice and reigning with God that our present would be lawsuits against each other. Now let me address an elephant in the room, an important question, a valid question to ask. Does the Bible forbid Christians from filing lawsuits or pressing charges against other Christians? And this is not, this is my own conclusion. You may have a different one. I think if you look at this legalistically, the answer is simply yes. That's what Paul says. Don't, don't go before the courts to settle your disputes. But I think if we take a principle approach to Scripture, in other words, drive to the heart of God, what is, what is God teaching us in 1 Corinthians 6? What is Paul uh, concerned about in 1 Corinthians 6? Then the answer becomes a little more complex. I might say it this way, if you feel the need to go into a legal battle with a brother in Christ or sister, especially someone within your own local church, I would encourage you to ask two important questions. The first, obviously, would be, can this be uh, settled among ourselves or with the help of other Christians or church leadership, you know, right here, before it spills out into the watching world, can this be settled within the context of the local church? 
If that is not possible, the second question becomes, is there a way to protect the witness of the church, meaning the broader church, redeemed people, while I pursue this area of justice that is necessary to pursue? You may or may not know that there are organizations that have risen up in the last several generations that are Christian litigation services. They actually come alongside churches and help them handle matters legally, but without getting into the courts or without having media spotlight placed on them. So that's just one example of a route that you might take to try to get justice without violating the principles of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But I will add this, there will be and unfortunately are inevitably cases that cannot be handled simply internally. And I'm thinking specifically of areas of abuse that have happened in churches. Praise God, not in this one, but that has happened. And I want to make that very clear because we got to be careful that we don't use the Bible to silence victims. Say, hey, the Bible says don't go before the court, so hey, don't, you know, that pastor has served well. We need to, no, 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 no. Sometimes the need for accountability trumps even the goal of Christian unity and witness. Again, if people of God won't hold themselves accountable, if they're using their power for evil and not for good, it may become inevitable that that becomes a trial. It's not your fault, okay? That's just the inevitable reality that we live in. And so this is one of many reasons why I think we can't take a legalistic approach with the Bible that's used sometimes as a hammer or, or, or duct tape to silence. We're not going to do that. But when we take those kind of issues aside, when we talk about the conflicts that happen because your kid slapped my kid or, or your wife said something to my wife or whatever it might be, the kind of conflicts we get into, the principle here would say handle that as quickly and as quietly as possible. Maybe a real practical application is Facebook doesn't need to know, <laughs> okay? There's a way to go about resolving conflict in the church that protects its witness and aims for Christian unity. Now, Paul is only giving the prohibitive here. He's only saying don't go into the courts to, ha to handle those kind of disputes. But fortunately, Jesus gives us the how-to approach when there is conflict. So Paul's just going to say don't do that. But Jesus in Matthew 18 tells us what we should do. Now, I briefly touched on this last week and moved on, but I think for today's message, it's important that we camp out there for just a minute or two and actually read the words of Jesus in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. This is Jesus' teaching on how to handle Christian conflict. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or as a tax collector. Very quickly, I want to go through this. If you were here last week, this is, um, we're going over it again. If you weren't, this will be new as far as from this teaching. Jesus says the first step in resolving Christian conflict is one-to-one. -one. You go to the person, you say, hey, this that you did to me or this that you did to another person, I think it was wrong. I think it was outside of God's plan. I think it's sin. I think you need to make it right. If that person doesn't listen, what you do is you take a few others with you. 
Ideally, that's people of the same gender who also care about that person. And in a relational way, maybe over a cup of coffee or whatever it might be, you say, hey, we really care about you. We, we really see that like that truck and trailer getting away, we see some things getting away from you. It's causing pain to the people that you love and we're stepping in to try to help you. And Jesus says, if the person won't listen, then take it to the church. In other words, maybe you involve a small group leader, a volunteer team leader, the deacons, maybe the pastor or staff, and, and an intervention of sorts happens. And then Jesus says, if the person won't listen to the one and they won't listen to the few, and they won't even, even listen when church leadership steps in, treat them as a Gentile or tax collector. What, what Jesus is saying is, consider them to be a lost person. Because people who have the spirit of God inside of them reckon with their sin. Do you remember David? I didn't share this in the, in the earlier, I don't have it in my notes, but do you remember King David? Uh, he has this monumental sin, actually a couple really, really big ones all put together. And a prophet named Nathan comes to him and he says, hey, you know, there's this guy in your kingdom and he's taken, uh, he's got all these sheep, but he went over to this poor guy. He took his one sheep and sacrificed it for a meal. David's like, that's so wrong. If he's got all those sheep, he shouldn't take the poor man's sheep. And Nathan goes, you're the man who did this. He was using metaphor, using allegory essentially to show David what he had done in taking another man's wife. And you know what David said? I've sinned. Like, <laughs> Like that, in the moment. Like, he didn't hide it. He didn't deny it. He, he sat down and wrote Psalm 51. God created me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Cast not your presence from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. This is how people of God deal with their sin. Maybe not immediately, but when enough pressure is put on, the spirit of God convicts and we repent. And if that doesn't happen, it points to the simple fact that that person doesn't have the spirit of God in them. They're not a redeemed person. It doesn't mean we treat them poorly. Treating somebody as a Gentile or tax collector simply means we start to pray for them differently. Now we're praying for their salvation. We're praying for their repentance. We're praying that God does whatever it takes to get a hold of that person's heart and life because they're drifting toward utter destruction. The goal always is uh, redemptive and not vindictive. The goal is always reconciliation. And so, although personal conflict and interpersonal conflict is unavoidable in the church, we can protect the unity of the church and the witness to the outside world by handling it in biblical ways. I want to I end this message in, in a more personal way because it's one thing to learn all of these things about how churches and people handle conflict. Most of you probably aren't tuning into the podcast documentaries. I kind of geek out on that stuff. But, but maybe you walked in today and the issue for you is not some church or some celebrity pastor. The issue for you is there's conflict in your home. There's conflict with a neighbor. There's conflict with a coworker. There's something kind of stuck like a pebble in your shoe that is irritating, that is eroding. And you're going, I need, I need to let that go. I need to lay that down. And I believe God has freedom for you today. And in just a moment, I'm going to lead us in a prayer of release. But before I do that, I want to ask this question. How differently would your interactions with other people look if you kept in mind these two realities? The eternal nature of your relationship with that person and the shared reign with God that you will have in heaven with them. You see that person is more than just a source of pain, a source of conflict. 
What if you began to see that child or that parent or sibling, that neighbor or coworker, that small group member? What if you began to see them as a brother or sister that you're going to share eternity with? And would that be enough to say, God, I want to lay this down. I want to release this. I want to let this go. I'm going to invite you to, to lock into your mind somebody with whom you need to release something. And I say a believer. It may not be a believer. It may be somebody that you thought was a believer. And it shows that maybe now you're not so sure. But it's creating bondage in your own heart. And I want to lead you in this prayer. You may just close your eyes. You may lift your hands up in a posture of release as you say this prayer with me in your own heart. God, I give this situation, including the one who has done me wrong, over to you. I place it and them into your capable hands, believing that you are in control and that you are a God of justice. Release from me the need I feel to win or to be proven right by others. Replace my bondage, God, to this situation with freedom. Replace my anger with love in Jesus' name. And God, as I come to you on behalf of all of us as a church, Lord, I pray that where there are the seeds of discord, the seeds of conflict, God, would you help us to step into those places graciously, directly, but compassionately? God, would you not allow the enemy to, to wedge something in between this congregation, our staff, our teams, our deacons, our leaders, God, all of our people, God, would you protect us in the unity of Christian brotherhood? Would you protect our witness to Horizon West and the watching community around us? And God, would you prepare us for the great things that you have in store in your future kingdom? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.